Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Well, good morning. The Don he was just talking about, and uh, we will be uh, getting into the word in just a minute. Ephesians 4, verse 25 to 5, verse 2. Therefore, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that your spirit, for whom we're also thankful, would bear witness to it now in our hearts. Uh, Lord, uh, help me to get out of the way. Please remove any distraction that I would be so that we can really hear what you want to say to us today. This is your living word, and I pray that you would apply it to our hearts, help our our minds to understand and our hearts to apply, so that our bodies can live it out. And so this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, we subscribe at home to uh, one of the national newspapers. We have a subscription to a newspaper, and uh, it's a good paper. If if you want to know afterwards what we read, I'll tell you, and I'd recommend it. It's it's a good one. They they cover serious stories. Their reporting is balanced. The opinion pieces make me think. But uh, once a month, uh, once a month, the Saturday paper is delivered with a, a glossy magazine, And that magazine is absurd. It's really absurd. Uh, Usually there's an interview, and ostensibly the interview is kind of the point of the magazine. There's a picture of some famous person on the cover of it, and there will be an interview with that sports star or politician or whoever it is on the inside. But I'm convinced that that article, that that interview, is really just an excuse to, to push fashion. Because the whole thing, this whole glossy magazine is filled with ad after ad and story after story about the latest fashions. And uh, it's, uh, they're just all filled with it. Men, women, models wearing all kinds of these, these trendy, fashionable clothes. And I've got to be honest with you, usually it goes straight in the recycling bin. A lot of times I won't even open it and uh, Laura doesn't have time for it. So it just goes straight in the recycling bin. But once in a while I'll open this thing up just to kind of see what's going on. 
And uh, every single time I open it up and page through it, I have the same response. And my, my poor wife, she puts up with this. I, I go through and you turn a few pages and finally it's, who would wear that? Right? I mean, it's, who would wear this? Who are they designing these clothes for? It's always my response. And, and I get it. You know, they don't expect you to actually wear it. Supposedly, it's supposed to be to show the trends. But, but still, who's going to wear a dress made out of feathers? Right? I remember seeing that one once, and I was just, who's going to wear a dress made out of feathers? Maybe Big Bird, but uh, that's, that's, that's got to be it. That's got to be it. Who else is going to dress that way? Well, thankfully, our text today, the Apostle Paul, is a lot more practical when it comes to fashion sense. He's a lot more practical, a lot more helpful. Uh, this morning, we're, we're picking up with where we left off last week. And so last week, we, used, we talked about clothing. If you were here, you'll remember that, or I'll bring you up to speed here in the next couple of minutes. Uh, but we talked about how the way we live needs to change. It needs to change when we give our lives to Jesus. Staying the way we were before Jesus is not an option for someone who's born again. And I showed you how we went through kind of that middle part there of chapter 4, and I showed you how Paul uses a clothing metaphor, a clothing metaphor to describe how our lives are supposed to change. And so uh, our old way of life, the way we lived before we knew Jesus, was like an old set of clothes. And they're tattered, and they're worn, and maybe they're dirty, and they don't fit us anymore. And so we need to take them off, right? That was last week's text. Take off the old self. And, and then in its place, we put on the new self, the new way of living, the Christ way of living, is, is how we talked about it last week. And toward the end of last week's text, we, we kind of focused in on that new set of clothes that we have in Christ that God's doing in us. And I, I kind of, basically what Paul did in last week's text is he kind of gave us an overview of this new set of clothes that we have. And so I, I took you relatively quickly through three characteristics of the new set of clothes. Uh, we talked about where it comes from. And so we talked about the source of our new set of clothes. And that source is the Holy Spirit. It's the renewing of our minds by his spirit. And so it starts on the inside and it works its way out, right? So, so we're not talking legalism and, and good works for good works' sake. We're talking about something that God does from the inside out. So we talked about the source, and we talked about the nature of this new way of living, and the nature is that God is making us into the image of Christ. And so he's recreating us. It's not just that God's making us moral, it's that God is making us like Christ. That, that was the second thing, so we talked about the nature of it. And then we talked about the result, and that was the last thing we talked about. It's there at the end of verse 24, last week's text. Uh, the result of this new set of clothes, this spiritual clothing, uh, is that God is, is forming us in true righteousness and holiness. Remember that, that phrase, true righteousness and holiness? It's the end of verse 24. And I pointed out that, that those terms, in, in some of our brains, those are really kind of theoretical, nebulous terms, but they're actually very practical. They're very practical, and now we're going to see how practical they are in today's text, because they, they work out in the way we live. And so that brings us to this morning's passage, because what the text I'm going to look at now, we're going to look at together, is, is Paul showing us what he means by this new set of clothes. So he's going to show us what this new wardrobe looks like, our spiritual fashion sense, if you will. This is what it's supposed to look like. And so in terms of the text, as we look at verses 25 through 32 there, I want to think about these in terms of garments, because that's the, he keeps using, he doesn't do it with every single one, but it, it repeats itself as a thread that runs through this whole section. They're like articles of clothing that we, in each case he tells us which one to take off and which one to put on instead. And so we have these garments of clothing, and then he summarizes the wardrobe 
in that first two verses of chapter 5, which is why I asked Ian to read that part too, uh, he kind of sums up the wardrobe. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, chapter 5, verse 1, and walk in love. Here's how you imitate God as beloved children. You walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so everything we're talking about this morning, and I'll bring it back to this at the end, everything we're talking about is tied together by love. And so you can almost think about that's love is the, is the closet we're keeping all these clothes in, if you want to think about it that way. And so this, this closet, this new self-wardrobe, is t- tied together by Christ-like love. That's the, ma- the theme that runs through all of this this morning. So here's how I want to do this. We're going to spend most of our time, actually, in verses 25 through 32. And I want to show you five garments, five articles of clothing in this this new wardrobe, this new self-closet that we have as the Holy Spirit is working this out and working out our salvation uh, in our lives. So here's how we're supposed to clothe ourselves spiritually. That's the the follow-up to last week's. Here's here's what what it looks like. So number one. And I won't, there are other things we read about in other texts, but we're going to look at the five Paul has in this text today. So, uh, number one, the first garment in our closet here is uh, truthful speech. Truthful speech. That's the one he goes to first, right there in verse 25. He says, therefore, and the therefore connects us back to that whole paragraph before with the old self, new self change. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Speak the truth with his neighbor. Let each one of you, he says. So he uses a clothing word again. So it's when he says put away, let each one put away. Uh, another translation translates it as laying aside, having laid aside falsehood, taking off falsehood. And so again, it's this picture of taking off a garment, throwing it away, getting rid of it. It doesn't fit us anymore. Except in this case, it's not a tattered old coat or a ripped shirt. Here, the thing we're taking off, getting rid of, is falsehood. He says that at the beginning of the verse. Falsehood. Having taken off falsehood. We've already removed it. See how he almost he assumes we've, we've done it already because we're already working on this. Uh, the word falsehood, you'll, you'll recognize it. The Greek word is pseudo. Pseudo. We use that in English. We use it as a prefix sometimes. Pseudo. Like a pseudonym. Right? If an author uses a pseudonym, that's not the author's real name. Right? They've got some fancy name they want to put on the cover to sell books, maybe. And so it's a false name. A pseudonym is a false name. And so he, he's you know, get rid of get rid of the false stuff is, is what he says there. So so falsehood, lies, you know, all of this kind of if it's not true, get rid of it, he says. What do we put on in its place? It's speaking the truth. So in its place, speak the truth with your neighbor, he says. And, and when he says speak the truth, sometimes we'll see this kind of language in other contexts. It makes us think of the gospel. So we talk about telling somebody the truth or speaking the truth. We might think in terms of the gospel in a different context. But in verse 25, with the contrast to falsehood, he's not talking about sp- tell people the gospel. That's, that's certainly true. We should tell people the gospel. But in this verse, he's just saying say things that are true, not things that are lies. And then the other thing he does here, just it, his focus here is not on what we think in our heads. The focus is more on how we talk to each other. And so there's a relational community aspect to this. Speak the truth with your neighbor, he says. Let each one of you speak the truth with your neighbor. And, and so that makes it relational and it makes it personal as we think about this. So the idea is wherever and whenever we're inter- interacting with other folks, uh, especially with each other as believers, but really with anybody, whenever we're interacting with people, Speak the truth. Speak truthfully, he says. 
Now, at first we look at that and we go, well, that's easy. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm not a liar. Right? None, of, none of us thinks of ourselves that way. I'm not a liar. And, and so we would read this first one and we, we'd want to say, well, that's easy. That, one, that one's an easy one to do. But when you start to think about it and just think about what does it look like to speak the truth, you realize this, actually, this, this issue, I'm going to spend more time on this one because I think this one is a very timely one in these days you and I live in. But, but it also kind of sprawls, right? It sprawls all over the place and touches so many different aspects of where we live. Uh, it, it's not just the bald-faced lies. It, it comes out in many different other areas of life. Um, it reminds me, for example, it reminds me of a, a Charlie Brown cartoon I saw. Years ago, I saw this Charlie Brown cartoon. Uh, Charlie Brown and Lucy are in school together. Remember, Lucy's kind of his uptight little friend. And, uh, and, and they're in school together, and it's the first day of school. First day of school, kids have come back from summer vacation, and the teacher has given them the classic first day of school assignment. She's asked them to write an essay or write a paragraph on, on your summer vacation. Right? You ever, I don't know if they still do that, but they used to do that. So, so write an essay on your first, on, on your summer vacation. So, so then we see in the rest of the comic what Lucy writes. Right? This is Lucy's essay. Uh, Vacations are nice, she says, but it's good to get back to school. There's nothing more satisfying or challenging than education, and I look forward to a year of expanding my knowledge. And then in the last panel of the comic, she leans over to Charlie Brown and she whispers, after a while, you learn what sells. <laughs> we do that. We do that sometimes. We learn what sells. We learn what people want to hear, and then we tell them what they want to hear, not because we believe it ourselves, but because it's going to score us some points. Right? It'll get us ahead with a teacher or a boss or, a, I don't know, maybe a person we're trying to win over or something like that. But verse 25 is very firm in this. Don't do that. If you don't believe it, don't say it. Right? That would apply here. The, the, the exaggerations, the hyperboles, the, 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 the white lies. Uh, this applies in other ways. When you start thinking about this idea of truth-telling, uh, if you're not sure it actually happened, don't say it. Right? If you're in a conversation afterwards and somebody's like, hey, did you hear about such and such? Like, yeah, I'll tell you what I think, what I heard. If you're not sure it didn't happen, say it. Uh, if you don't have the facts, keep the story to yourself. If you make a promise, that would apply here. If you make a promise, keep the promise. That's a, that's a, a way of telling the truth. Uh, those, are, those are all examples of, of what he's got going there in verse 25. But I think one of the biggest places we see this, this days, these days is, is the internet. Right? This is a big issue in this internet age in which you and I are now living. You know, Think about it. We, we live in amazing times. It really is very amazing. Anyone who wants to can have a voice. Right? Any of us can have a voice in the digital world if we care to have one. Uh, there's no guarantee anybody's going to listen, but uh, uh, we, we can do that. We can have a voice. Uh, you could go on to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat or whichever one, and you can, you can express whatever thoughts or ideas or opinions that you have. And it's kind of cool. I mean, there's a big upside on this because what it does is it gives normal people like us a voice. We, we get a voice. 20 years ago, the only people who had that kind of, of reach were journalists, professional journalists, were the only ones who really had a voice where they could speak and, and a lot of people would hear. Uh, most of the rest of us, the most we could do would be, you know, write a letter to the editor, send it in, and then they'll never publish it uh, in most instances. But now, I mean, if you've built up your following, you can go onto Twitter and you can have... You can tell hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people, you know, what you think. You can get your ideas out there. And, and so there's been this democratization, you, 
they call it, democratization of access. And I think that's a good thing. But it's also a dangerous thing, right? It's a dangerous thing because people can say anything they want, you know? So, hey, here's the cool thing. Any people can say anything they want. Here's the bad thing. People can say anything they want. And, and that, that's what we're dealing with now. And, and this is why I think it's so important for you and me as Christians, right? Because nobody wants censorship. I don't want, you know, Facebook censoring or the government, God forbid, censoring. We, we don't want censoring. So what's going to be the solution going to be self-censoring, self-monitoring. And who's, who's, going to, who's equipped to lead the way on this? It's going to be you and me. It's the same thing I said a few weeks ago when, I talked, when we talked about justice. Who's best equipped to move forward on justice? Well, it's the people who understand justice, thanks to God's word. It's the same thing here. Who's best equipped to defend what's true and to, 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 uh, to, to defend and promulgate truth-telling in the public square? Well, it's the people of truth. We're the ones. And so when we are interacting on social media, we need to put away falsehood and speak the truth with our digital neighbors. And this really is a big issue for us as Christians. I think we have to own this one. Uh, several months ago, long, several months ago now, um, someone I'm connected to on one of the platforms shared a story. And, and I don't think it was any of you, or I wouldn't use the story here, but, but uh, somebody I'm connected with uh, shared a story of something that happened in another part of the world. And it was an awful story. Right? It was one of those stories where like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I live on a planet where that kind of thing happened. It involved Christians being killed and murdered as they were like, in church together and they were shot. And it was like some, some kind of an awful story like that. And this story was being passed around by Christians from one to another to another to another, going, kind of gone viral over the internet. And, and I read this story and you know, it, it, something just seemed a little off for me in this story. And so I grabbed kind of like one of the key phrases out of the story, and I went over to a general search engine, and I dropped it into the search engine, I just searched on the story. Can I find out more facts about the story? And within 10 seconds, I found the exact same story from 15 years ago. It was exactly the same. The, the name of the country where it supposedly happened had been changed, but everything else was the same. The number of people in the room, how they were treated, the phrases, the whole thing. It was made up. Now, the person who shared it, I'm sure, was well-intentioned, and, and we, we were well-intentioned about these things, but good intentions doesn't make it true, and, and that was what happened in that case. Uh, recently, um, MIT, uh, the university in, in, in Massachusetts, uh, did an analysis, I don't know which department, but one of their departments did an analysis of a Facebook report, all right? So, so Facebook had done, uh, they, they try to understand their own product, and so Facebook had done an internal report in 2019 in which they were analyzing how their platform is being used. It's a big issue. If you follow the news, you know they're taking a lot of heat because of this right now. And so they were trying to figure out uh, how their platform is used. And so in 2019, Facebook generated an internal report called How Communities Are Exploited on Our Platforms. And somehow MIT, I think it might have been made public, and MIT did an analysis of this, and that's what I was reading. So, so here's what they found. So Facebook analyzed their own data, and according to their own analysis of their own data, so not somebody trying to play gotcha <laughs> with Facebook, uh, they, they looked at a bunch of things, but one of the things they looked at was the top 20 Christian sites. So Christian-themed pages. If you're on Facebook, you know that there's these pages. You can have your own individual section, but then there's these groups, I guess. And, uh, and so of the top most popular, top 20 most popular, most trafficked Facebook pages that are themed around Christian themes, they share Bible verses, tell Christian stories, 
uplifting motivational memes, all this kind of thing. The top 20 most popular sites, 19 of them were fake. Fake. You say, what do you mean fake? Well, here's what I mean by fake. They said they're being administered by Christians. Right? So we Christians, here we are, we're going to share Bible verses with each other, and I'm going to tell you encouraging stories to build up your faith. That's what the front said. In reality, 19 of the top 20 were being run out of troll farms in Eastern Europe. So what's a troll farm? Picture, don't picture trolls like the cute little dolls. Picture um, like trolling when you go fishing. If you ever, you know, you, you put the boat on low and you, tr- you go along the river and you drag the bait along behind, it's called trolling. And, uh, and that's, so you could call them click farms. I think they're sometimes called click farms as well. And so what they were doing, so here's, here's what they were doing. They, they, were, they were trolling for, for clicks, okay? And so they were not sharing Bible verses because they wanted to build up people's faith. They were sharing Bible verses because Christians like to click on Bible verses and Christian stories about bad things that are happening in the world and, and all that kind of thing. And when Christians click on Bible verses, that generates money for advertisers. That's what they were all about. They weren't being run by nice little grandma types with, you know, Christian values. They were running by, being run by these, these advertising generating things. And, and 19 of the top 20. And, and then the other thing Facebook found, because again, there's this pressure on them, rightfully so, I think, from the culture to stop kind of pushing all this stuff that's false. And some of you know that's a big issue in the political realm. I'm just talking about our realm here. Uh, The other thing they found was that those Christian sites, those 19 Christian sites, were among the most vulnerable to sharing the fake stories, the things that weren't true, the things that were half-truths, and so on. Again, why? Well, because they get lots of clicks. And so what's the moral and all that? I'm not trying to say get off of social media. You may feel so called, but that's not my point. The point is be careful. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have to be careful. That's the takeaway. And so we have to be careful what we post, what we share. We even have to be careful what we like, right? Before you hit that little heart or that little thumbs up sign or whatever it is, recognize that that's an endorsement, right? Oh, Pastor Don liked this story. It must be true. Well, maybe Pastor Don better make sure it's true before, before he likes it. And, and that's, that's true for all of us. So what's the takeaway on this one? I'm spending way more time on this one than I will the others if you're worried about the time. But uh, the, the takeaway is, is we all have to do our best to speak the truth to our digital neighbors as well as our, our in-person neighbors. All right, number two, moving on. Uh, the second uh, garment in our closet here is uh, what I'm going to call disciplined anger. Disciplined anger. And we read about this one in verses 26 and 27. The apostle says, Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So there's a basic assumption here that we have to understand with this, uh, those, these two little verses, and it's that not all anger is bad. right? Not all anger is bad. In fact, some anger is good. And the very best example of this, of course, is Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus got angry on several occasions in the scripture. And Jesus was, a, was without sin. Jesus never sinned even once. And uh, I was actually reading one of these the other day. It's just such a good example. And uh, it, it was in Mark. You could go read it yourself. It's the beginning of Mark chapter 3. Jesus goes into a synagogue. It's the Sabbath day. And uh, first thing he notices is a man with a disabled hand. It's a withered hand, the text says. I don't know if it's a congenital issue or if he'd had an accident or something. But he couldn't use his hand. And Jesus clocks that this guy's hand doesn't work, and it's the Sabbath day, and he knows he's already been having this battle with the religious leaders, and so he, he finds the leaders in the room, the religious leaders, and he says, tell me, is it legal to heal this man? Can, can, is it legal for this man to, to be healed on the Sabbath day? And they, they won't answer him. 
It says specifically in the text that they were silent. They refused to engage Jesus on this issue. And then we read this, Mark 3, 5, when Jesus and Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And that right there is a great example of good anger. Jesus was angry at those men because of their legalism and their lack of compassion. And then he went ahead and he healed the man. If you keep reading the story, he's saying, so his anger motivated him to good and he, he set the man free. So not all anger, when we get to this issue of anger, not all anger is bad. However, some anger is bad. And that is actually the anger that Paul zeroes this in on here. That's the, the, basically, this second one is take off the bad anger and put on the good anger. Get rid of the uncontrolled, peevish, self-centered uh, anger, and in its place put on the disciplined, godly, righteous, holy anger. That's, that's really what, what this is saying. And so be angry and do not sin. And so what we're being told here is to get mad about the things God gets mad about. Right? Those would be, that would be righteous anger, holy anger. Get, get mad uh, in a disciplined, self-controlled way about racism or about abortion and about pornography and about human trafficking and, and so many of these other things. Those are the things we should, should be angry about. And the, there's a, we're actually given a reason here. The reason, you say, well, what's wrong with sinful anger? Well, what's wrong, wrong with it is that it hurts people. Right? It hurts people. Don't give the devil an opportunity. What is the devil always looking for an opportunity to do? To kill and destroy, right? to devour like a, like a prowling lion. And so the devil's op- what he's looking for an opportunity to do is to hurt, to harm, to destroy, to break relationships, to hurt people, to sever marriages. Uh, and, so, and so this issue is important because sinful anger is really destructive. It hurts people. I saw an example of this, kind of a, a more gentle example of, of, uh, of this anger, how anger helps people uh, a couple months ago. It was from the world of baseball. And uh, back in June, the Cincinnati Reds were playing the San Diego Padres. And uh, the, one of the stars for the Reds, I think he's probably their best player, is a guy named Joey Votto. Joey Votto. And so Joey Votto was playing in San Diego, a member of the Reds, and in the first inning, he came up to bat. He's one, of the, he's one of their good players. They had him stacked toward the front. He comes up to bat, and he struck out, right? On the third swing, uh, he kind of tried to do one of those check swing things where they try to hold the bat, but he went too far, or at least the third base umpire thought he went too far. And so the third base umpire called him out, even though he thought he was, he was, he still, he thought it was a ball. And so uh, Joey Votto, he's walking back toward the dugout, and he's kind of yelling like they do at, uh, at that third base umpire. But then uh, the home plate umpire said something. And I don't know if anybody knows what he said except for Joey Votto and maybe the catcher. But the home plate umpire said something. And Votto wigged out. He like threw his bat down. He comes back to that umpire. And he starts yelling at the umpire. And kind of, you know, sometimes they go too far. And, and he was in the umpire's face. Like, like basically his manager thought he was going to attack the, the umpire. And so the manager comes running out. And he's kind of doing the whole get back, get back thing, you know. And, and uh, he's kind of a little, little bit of theater there. But he was really mad. Vada was really mad. And when you attack the umpire like that, you're out of here. And so, yes, very quickly, you're out of here, threw him out of the game, the manager got thrown out as well, they were both thrown out. And so that was it. You know, third batter, fourth batter of the inning, uh, the, the, the game, the game had just started, and Joey Votto, star of the Reds, is out. Now, that's bad enough, right? So now, what chance do the Reds have of winning if your star's out? I think they lost that game. But that's just the beginning. Uh, there was a, a mom in the stands, 
And uh, she was, uh, so this has taken place in Southern California, and she had to move there because of her work. But uh, she grew up in Ohio. Lifelong Reds fan, loved the Reds all of her life. Now she was a grown-up woman, has her job, has a kid, has a daughter. And she brought her daughter to the game. And she was so excited about sharing uh, her love for the Reds with her six-year-old daughter. Little six-year-old girl, cute little girl. And guess who that girl's favorite player was? Joey Votto. And she had her Joey Votto t-shirt on and the little sign, you know, hit it here, Joey, and whatever else she had. I know she had the t-shirt. And, uh, and she, you know, first inning, all of a sudden, Joey's gone. And she asks her mom, Mommy, what's going on? And, and mom had to explain, well, Joe Votto... He got thrown out. We're not going to get to watch him after all. We're not going to get to see him play today. And I don't know if the little girl actually burst into tears. She might have, but she definitely kind of got a very sad kind of, she was just crushed. She was so sad that she wasn't going to get to see Votto play in the game. Now, this being the internet age, what do you think mom did? She took a picture and she posted it to Twitter in which she announced what Joey Votto had just done <laughs> to her daughter, to the whole world. Hey, world, look what Joey Votto, the star Reds player, did to my poor daughter with her, her sad face and her, her Joey Votto t-shirt. Now, the, uh, the Reds, of course, they have people paid to watch this kind of thing. And so in very short order, uh, the Reds knew that this had happened, and they came out to her to try to make it right, and they brought her more t-shirts and uh, Reds merchandise. And, and best of all, they brought her actually a baseball signed by Joey Votto, and... Uh, an apology to his credit, right? I don't want to, to his credit, he actually wrote the girl a handwritten apology in which he said, I'm sorry, I didn't get to play the entire game, or I didn't play the entire game. The point is anger hurts people, right? That's kind of a, a silly story as a girl doesn't get to see the players, the mom's disappointed. Uh, it, it, it hurts people. Anger hurts people. And sometimes it's in relatively harmless ways, but other times it's horrible. Right? And this is the problem, right? This is the problem. Uncontrolled, undisciplined anger hurts people. That petty anger that emanates not because of, it's generated by righteousness and holiness, but rather it's generated by my need to get my way or to not be offended or to have you respect me when I haven't earned that or, or any of that. That kind of anger is, is, is destructive. It gives an opportunity to the devil. It leads to, to, to spousal abuse. It leads to abuse of children. It leads to people getting in trouble with the law. How many of us, we won't raise our hands, but how many of us know someone who has gotten in trouble with, with the law, with police, for example, because of getting out of control? Uh, that sort of thing. And sometimes even, once in a while, you see these stories in the news where, where anger is so out of control that you end up with one person killing another person. And so, so it's, it's kind of it's sort of funny when a baseball player wigs out and, and loses his cool, but it's, it's not at all funny in so many other instances. And so what does Paul tell us? He says, get rid of it. Get rid of sinful anger in its place. Learn how to handle your anger in a godly way. Right? Don't, don't let it fester. And there, there's that advice there. Uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You can take that as a literal thing if you want. I've, I've known plenty of couples who, you know, they, they'll, they'll stay up till four in the morning, maybe working it out, but, you know, not letting that sun go down on their anger. That's certainly fine to do that. But the principle behind that is don't let it stew. Don't let it cook. Don't let it fester. Deal with it. Make sure there's reconciliation. Make sure there's forgiveness. We'll get to that one later. Uh, but whatever you need to do to deal with it, do it. Don't give the devil an opportunity. That was number two. All right, number three. Now, the third garment in our wardrobe here is honest work. Honest work. And that's, that's, that's verse 28. He says, uh, let the thief no longer steal, 
but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Don't steal. Don't steal. You'd think that would be obvious and we wouldn't need to say it, but still we'll say it. Don't steal. Uh, but it's worth noting here that when he, the way Paul describes this, uh, he, he means more than just kind of, you know, the, the burglar breaking into the house in the middle of the night and walking out with the, the big screen TV. Uh, it, it's, it's, it would include that to be sure. But, but what he says in Greek is, let him who steals, steal no longer. And so it's a more generalized description. It actually doesn't use the word thief. It's, it's the, the one who steals. And so what that does is that broadens our interpretations to a more general, any, any area where we might be taking, taking something that isn't ours. And so don't game the system. Don't take what belongs to someone else. Don't cheat on that exam. That's a form of stealing. Don't uh, hunt for that unfair advantage to get over on other people. Hunt for the fair advantages, but not the unfair one. Uh, don't bend the rules to your own need. Don't fudge your taxes. Don't overstate the damage on that insurance claim. Stop stealing, he says. Don't steal in any of those creative ways that human beings find to steal, to take that which is not theirs. What do we put on instead? We clothe ourselves with honest work. That's, that's the word he uses. Do honest work, Paul says. And, and it, he, he, makes, he describes it as work with your hands. Do honest work, work with your hands. Uh, that does not preclude white-collar work or tech sector work or pink-collar work. Or, you know, it, it's not meant to say only work with your hands is honest, honest honorable work. What the, the point there is that uh, we should do the work that's our work. Right? Use whatever gifts and abilities and skills God has given you to earn a living for yourself and for your family. Stop looking for kind of, stop trying to get over, stop trying to get away with something that isn't yours. Uh, do honest work. Use what God has given you to earn the way for your own, for, for you and yours. That, that's, that's sort of the idea there. That's the Christ way, right? That's the Christ way of living. He also puts it, there's a motive built into this, interestingly. Uh, I think he's going to assume that we would do this to take care of our families, right? That's, that's, that's a basic assumption. Uh, but his, the motive Paul identifies is, is so that we can be generous. And he makes a very interesting link here. Honest work is generous. It's connected to generosity, which makes sense if you think about it. At first, I was kind of looking at that this week. I'm like, what's the connection between those two? But it actually makes sense. If you're the sort of person who cheats people, well, you're probably also going to be the sort of person who wants to keep everything he gets for himself. Right? Of course he is. You know? and, but on the other hand, if you're the sort of person who's going to do the honest things, going to do the right thing, that's the sort of person who's also going to be a generous person with what he or she has. And so there's this correlation here between the two. Honest work uh, leads to, tends to lead to a generous spirit and a generous life. So that's the third thing we're supposed to put on, according to this morning's text. Put on honest work. Number four, the fourth garment in our uh, wardrobe here is edifying speech. Edifying speech. This one's verses 29 and 30. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so again, we have this pattern of putting off one thing, putting on another thing. This time, the thing we're putting off, taking off, is corrupting talk. Corrupting talk, the ESV says. Do not let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Uh, this one, there's a lot of variety in the translations here. Um, New American Standard says unwholesome words. Uh, NIV says unwholesome talk. 
CSB, some of you use that one, uh, foul language it says, don't let any foul or abusive language, the New Living Translation says. And what all of those different translators are trying to do is they're trying to capture a Greek word that means rotten, rotten or decayed. When you, the, the word is sarpos in Greek. And when you use sarpos, this Greek word, in a literal, physical kind of context, uh, it's the word you would use, for example, for rotten fish. I could take you to Greek literature and show you an example, uh, examples where it's used. So, so you catch a fish on Saturday afternoon, you put it in a basket, and then you got busy and you forgot about it there, and you go out on Wednesday and you're like, whoo, what's that smell? Right, it's a rotten fish. This word is the word you'd use to describe that smell. Or uh, fruit. It's also used in several instances with rotten fruit. All right? And we're not talking, you know, well, the banana's got a few brown specks on it. I don't like them when they're that way. We're, we're talking full-blown rotting fruit. So rotten, even the flies have second thoughts. It's, it's, it's rotten. That, that, that's the idea. And Paul takes that word and he uses it and applies it to the words. The words that come out of our mouths. He says, don't let any rotting, decayed, spoiled, rancid words come out of your mouth. Does that include swearing? I think most of us would say, okay, that means like insults and abuse, and obviously that would be caught. But what about swearing? This has become a big one um, in, in some, some circles of Christianity. You know, people say, well, they're just words, right? And words change. I mean, how do I even know what counts as swearing? I mean, you know, people used to say, we, people say words now routinely. You know, teachers will say them. They say them in the television. Presidents say them. You know, words routinely are said in public that 50 years ago, 40 years ago, you said them, you were going to go to detention, right? Or you'd get in a lot of trouble. Words that are acceptable now weren't so acceptable. 40 years ago. And, and that flips. It's true. Language does change. There are words we used to say routinely uh, back in junior high, things my friends and I used to call each other, that if you say those words now, you know, you're going to be, I, I, I would give you examples, but if I say them, you'll get rid of me. So I can't say them. <laughs> I mean, like, seriously, right? There are these, you know, so language does evolve. And I think that objection is a legitimate objection. You know, I mean, so how do you know what counts? How do we know what counts as, as corrupt talk? I, I don't know if I can solve this for you, but I can give you a tip or two. Uh, for one thing, my, my conviction is I think we know, right? I mean, we talked last week, verses 23 and 24, about the Holy Spirit living within us. And I think if the Holy Spirit lives within us, uh, he, he's going to guide us in that. <clears throat> and so if we're in the habit of saying certain things or talking a certain way, uh, if we're staying in tune with the Holy Spirit, he's going to convict us of that. And, and he's going to say, or maybe he'll send a godly friend to say, you know, it really bothers me when you say that. Uh, and so between the Holy Spirit and godly friends, I think that's a, that's a big one that helps. If, if that feels too intangible, I, I like to try, I, I like to recommend the grandma test. The grandma test, right? If you, if you wouldn't say it in front of your grandma, maybe you shouldn't say it. You know, that, that one might be helpful too. And someone's going to come tell me, well, you should hear my grandma. Um, <laughs> fair enough. Not all grandmas are, are as uh, well-spoken as maybe they should be, as gentle as they should be. But, but you know what I mean, right? That, that's funny because you know what I mean. Uh, if we wouldn't say it in front of someone we really love and respect, like a grandma, or if we wouldn't say it in a job interview, or if we wouldn't say it to the governor, right? Imagine you had the chance to meet Governor Reynolds. Uh, if, if we wouldn't say it to her, uh, maybe it shouldn't be on the, on the plate at all. Maybe it shouldn't be something we say at all. And so uh, what do we put on instead? Well, he tells us, edifying speech. 
edifying speech. He says speech that builds up. And that word build up in Greek, actually, it's the, it's the word edify. It means, uh, I don't remember exactly how to say it, it doesn't matter anyway, but um, it means to build up, to edify. When we talk about an edifice, an edifice is another name for a building. And so when we talk about edifying somebody, really we're talking about building that person up. And so what we do instead is words that build up. So instead of curses and abuse and insults and so on, what should come out of our mouths are things that help people, make them stronger, make them whole. Uh, use, if you think of them almost as bricks, use good bricks when you're building into each other's lives, to your children's lives, your spouse's life. Use good bricks, not weak bricks or bad bricks. Use good bricks. And so that's the fourth one, edifying speech in place of, instead of that corrupt, unwholesome, rotten speech. Finally, number five, the fifth garment uh, is compassionate kindness. That's my attempt to summarize verses, uh, the last two there, 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. It's the clothing word again. Take it off. All bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, laid aside, along with all malice. I was going to read the other verse too. Be kind to one another. Here's the instead. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So again, it's the same pattern. Verse 31, what you get rid of. Verse 32, what we put on instead. What do we need to get rid of? It's a list of six things. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. And I think most of those words, if, if I had more time, I've already imposed on a, a long time here, but if we had more time, I could go through and define all those, but it just, I think most of us have a good sense of, of what those would mean. Maybe the hardest one is clamor. Uh, clamor is a word that basically means like shouting, but not nice shouting. It's not little kids playing in the backyard in August. It's, it's like a mob shouting. It's, it's clamor, which is why one translation has brawling. I think that idea of a mob is a good picture here. And so if you, you put those six together, really what you have a picture of in verse 31 is a troublemaker, right? A troublemaker. This is the sort of person who goes around picking fights, right? We've, we've known people like that. You know, they walk in the room and they look for the weakest person and immediately start picking on that person. It's, it's that kind of person, spewing insults, causing trouble wherever, wherever he or she goes. These days, we like to, we'll talk about toxic people. Verse 31 is a toxic person. That, that's what you have there. Paul says, get rid of that. If you were prone to that, not everybody is. Some people are very nice, unsaved sinners. Uh, but if you, were, if you were prone to this kind of toxic sort of thing, it is not appropriate. It does not fit anymore. Get rid of it, he says. What do we replace it with? Verse 32, compassionate kindness. What do we put on? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So the word for kind, uh, it means to be uh, excellent or suitable. When it's applied to behaviors, it means upright or good or benevolent, like, like a benevolent person. So it's this really kind of general word. Uh, a very sharp contrast to the stuff in verse 31, right? Very different from being malicious, bitter, slanderous, and so on. Uh, tender-hearted, the word actually means to be compassionate. In fact, at least one translation, I can't remember which one, translates it as compassionate. So that word tender-hearted means to be compassionate. And so compassion, what does compassion do? It, it feels sorry for someone with what they're going through, but it's not just kind of useless pity, it's, it, it helps. It gets in and it helps. And so compassion helps people. And so be kind. What does that kindness look like? It's going to be compassionate. It's going to be tenderheartedness. It's, it's going to be oriented toward helping other people. And then he brings it home in a very uncomfortable way, and he applies it to the issue of forgiveness. He says, uh, 
be kind and compassionate, what that's going to lead you to is to forgive one another when you hurt each other. And the problem with, with unforgiveness is that it feels good. Sometimes. I mean, eventually it eats us alive. But in the short term especially, it feels good to hold that grudge. How dare she say that about me? How dare he go around town saying those things about me? Right? And there's a certain kind of, a, you know, the adrenaline goes and the, the dopamine releases and whatever else happens up there in our brains. And, and it, feels, it can feel good to hold on to that, that grudge. But verse 31 says, get rid of it. Don't hold on to it. Get rid of that bitterness and replace it instead with this. What's the, it, how are we supposed to be oriented toward that person who hurt us, kind and tender-hearted, in a way that chooses to forgive that person what he or she did to us? And then, as if that wasn't hard enough, Paul cranks the ratchet one more time, and he says, here's how you forgive. You forgive them the way God in Christ forgave you. That's the end of the verse, the end of the chapter. And so stop and think, right? It's an exercise. What has God in Christ forgiven you? Not not to dredge up too much ugly stuff from the past that God's forgiven, but just let your mind drift over that for five or ten seconds. What has God in Christ forgiven you? And now think about how God treats you even though you did that. Is he harsh? Is he bitter? Does he hold a grudge? Or is he kind and tender-hearted and compassionate? That's what we're told to offer to each other. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it so well. It's one of my favorite quotes about forgiveness. To be a Christian, he said, means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And someone will say, I'm not God. I'm not God. I can't do that. I'm not God. You're right. You're not God. Neither am I. We're going to need some help. We can't do this on our own. We're going to need some time. We're going to need the Holy Spirit to do it in us. I'm not saying we, we flip a switch and all of a sudden the person is forgiven. But that's the standard. That verse 32 is the standard. Sometimes we let our hook ourselves off the hook. Well, that's too hard. That's too hard. He can't mean that. That must mean something else. No, that's the standard. Our, our goal as Christians is to take off the bitterness and grudges and in their place to clothe ourselves with the compassionate kindness of the same kind of forgiveness God in Christ has offered to us. Well, as I said at the, at the beginning, I'm going to wrap up here now. The first two verses of chapter 5 summarize all of that. And actually, verses 1 and 2 are kind of a hinge passage because they introduce what comes next. And uh, actually, Pastor Andrew's going to share next week's passage with us. And uh, so he and I talked about this. He's going to kind of pivot off of 1 and 2 next week and, uh, and bring it to you. And, and so let me just read those verses again, and you'll see how they summarize what we just looked at and set up what comes next. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us. And he goes on to describe the cross. But I, that first part, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. I've been an early riser most of my life. I'm just, I, I tend to get up early. And so usually what that has meant over the course of my life is that the best time for me usually to, to do devotions or have a quiet time, however you want to call that, uh, the best time for me to do that is usually the morning, right? So I'm kind of a morning person that way. Some of you maybe do it in, at night, that's great. Uh, but I, I, I kind of do devotions in the morning. And years ago, years ago, when my children were little, Laura and I lived in Connecticut, and we lived in a parsonage. That church had a parsonage. And so this parsonage had a family room downstairs, kind of a utility room and a family room. And in the mornings, I would go down there, right? All the bedrooms are upstairs. I would go down to the family room to have my quiet time, uh, and really just so I wouldn't wake anybody up, especially those babies, right? You don't want to wake up those babies any sooner than you have to. And so I would go downstairs so I didn't bother anybody. 
One day, though, one of my sons, one of our sons, found me. And uh, he's actually a bit of an early riser, too. He's, even to this day, he's more wired that way. And I don't know, it's probably 6 a.m. It might have even been earlier. And I hear this kind of toddle, toddle, toddle coming down the stairs. He might have even still been the age where he had to crawl down backwards. I don't remember. But uh, he found me. He came downstairs and he found me downstairs sitting there on the futon. We had this old futon. I sat on the futon, sitting on the futon reading my Bible. And uh, it was the cutest thing. He, he went over to a bookcase and he grabbed one of his little board books and he came over and he sat down on the futon with me, there in his jammies, sat down next to me and started to page through his board book. And this went on for a while. I don't remember how long. In a dad's mind, it probably was like 10 years, but it might have only been a week. I don't know. But, but it happened over the course of several days. It went on for a little while. He would, he would get up early. He'd come find me. And he'd imitate what he saw me doing. He'd go get a book. He'd sit on the futon. And he'd sit there and he'd, he'd, he'd read it. That's what we're told to do. That's what we're told, with a far greater father and a far more loving father, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to imitate our father, be imitators of God, Paul says, as beloved children. Look at what your daddy's doing and then do it. Do it yourself. And what's the father doing? How does he summarize it? Walk in love. That's the summary of all the stuff we looked at today. It's the summary of what we'll, we'll, we'll look at next week. It's not. Please don't walk away from this feeling like a heavy load of rules and regulations has been laid upon us. It hasn't. This is just about clothing ourselves, willingly, lovingly choosing to clothe ourselves with the Christ way, the Christ way of love. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for your love for us. You are our loving Father, and we praise you and thank you for it. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for their patience with a longer sermon. And thank you for uh, their desire to live this out. And so I pray that you would help them and me and every one of us who hears this sermon to, uh, to live out the Christ way, to be walking in all these things we talked about today as your Holy Spirit works in us to form them for your glory. We look to you. We can't do this ourselves if we could do it on our own power. We might try, but we can't. Only you can do it in us. And so we invite you to be doing it in Christ's name. Amen.